All right, I invite you to take out your Bibles, and you can turn to John chapter 8. John 8, starting in verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard with your, from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray before we get into God's word. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word today, we ask for your help. We recognize that your inspired word must be spiritually discerned, and so we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our ears and enlighten our eyes and soften our hearts to receive your truths. Grant me grace as I speak, that everything would be to the building up of your people. May anything unnecessary fall away. By your grace, Lord, may those who hear who have not previously heard and believed the gospel do so today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are continuing on in the Gospel of John this morning in a section uh, containing a lengthy public dialogue between Jesus and the Jews. Remember that these Jewish followers, although numerous and passionate, have not shown themselves to be sincere disciples. Far from it. At this point in Jesus' ministry, about two and a half years in, this crowd of Jews has grown increasingly belligerent and critical of Jesus. They are, for the most part, seeking to discredit him and justify themselves. Knowing this, Jesus has been extremely confrontational towards his Jewish listeners, telling them uncomfortable, unvarnished truths, which he will continue to do. As the criticism and hatred of Christ grows in intensity, so do his responses grow in intensity, as we will see today. When we last left off, Jesus had again set himself apart from the Jews by differentiating between their slavery and his freedom. Christ, being the perfectly righteous and obedient Son of God, is free and is able to grant freedom to all who come to him. 
The Jews, Jesus has taught, are, in spite of their Abrahamic lineage, slaves to sin along with the rest of mankind. This is a point that Jesus will continue to build on in our passage today, starting in verse 37. Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Jesus begins by affirming the fact that these Jews are Jewish indeed. That is, they are biologically Jewish. He does not question the fact that they are born in the familial line of Abraham. They share the same DNA, the same language, the same geographical location, the same culture. They share a family tree. This is a point that cannot be overstated in the mind of an Orthodox Jew. Abraham can rightly be called the father of Judaism, and he is indeed the father of many nations. However, in the Jews' extra-biblical tradition, they considered Abraham to be near deity. And all kinds of folklore exists granting Abraham godlike piety and power. According to this Jewish tradition, being one of Abraham's biological offspring was a near guarantee of right standing with God and a pass into heaven. Seemingly, this was the position held by the Jews in our passage. They were filled with what we might call Abrahamic entitlement. But Jesus is going to cut the legs out from under their false assurance, and he begins by differentiating between biological sonship, biological descent, and spiritual descent. In spite of your Abrahamic lineage, Christ says, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So this is no casual debate. These are serious accusations being hurled in both directions. And because Christ could see men's hearts, his accusations stick. They're true. The Jews have been seeking an occasion to kill, to kill Christ since the beginning of his public ministry. But Christ's time had not yet come. Jesus then responds with an ancestry claim of his own. He says in verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. If you have your Bibles open, notice there that Jesus has his father, capital F, and they have their father, small f. Jesus here is setting the stage for what he's going to say next, alluding to the fact that he and the Jews, although kinsmen biologically, have two very different fathers, two different origins. And Jesus, in previous dialogues, has already been making it clear that he is not merely Jewish, but that he has come from the heavenly father. Turn back a couple pages in your Bible to chapter 7, verse 16. Chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And again in verses 28 and 29, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. This is a clear statement of Jesus' deity, and this is all prefaced by John's introduction to this book, which we read together this morning, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was, in the beginning, with God. So Christ has made it clear that he is a messenger from God, and more than a messenger, he is truly God and truly man. His words have affirmed it. His miracles have affirmed it. Jesus is from the Father. The Jews, though, likewise reassert that they are Abraham's descendants. In verse 39, 
They say, Abraham is our father. We are his biologically. We are his culturally. We are his religiously. This crowd of men are no doubt circumcised, as was required of all Jewish males, beginning with Abraham. They have kept the ceremonial laws according to the customs followed by their people since the beginning. They have enjoyed the covenant blessings of being in the line of Abraham. After all, here they are in Jerusalem, the very city of God, debating someone who is in their mind a heretic. But how dare their Abrahamic lineage be questioned? And they are hung up on this fact. But in our discussion, in Jesus' dialogue, they have missed the point. If you look now in verse 38, you see that Jesus has moved on from discussions about Abraham. He is referring to a different father entirely. And so Jesus reiterates his point. He says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now, as it is, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. If you were truly Abraham's children, you would behave like him. You would believe my message, which was given to me from God, to paraphrase Christ's words. So let's take a, t- a bit of time to consider now what were the works that Abraham did. Turn with me for a moment to the book of Genesis, and we'll take a quick look at a few passages that I think encapsulate the character and qualities of Abraham. You will quickly see a big difference between Abraham's behavior and that of the Jews in our passage and elsewhere during Christ's ministry. Starting in Genesis 12, and this is the first call of Abraham, who was then called Abram. Genesis 12, verse 1, and into verse 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." In verse 4, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Here is the first recorded interaction between the Lord God, Yahweh, and Abram, in which God is promising to a 75-year-old Abram that he will make him into a great nation. That's a little bit hard to believe if you're 75 years old that you're going to have a lot of descendants, never mind one descendant. What is Abram's response to God's hard-to-believe promise? Obedience. Abraham went, verse 4, as the Lord had told him. So that's passage number 1. Let's go to chapter 13 in Genesis. And there we'll start in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And then verse 18, So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So again, notice in this passage, God speaks and Abram obeys. He goes And this time he worships. He builds an altar there for the Lord. 
As we work our way through Genesis, we read about some other situations where Abram displays his quality. He courageously rescues his nephew Lot and his family, redeeming them and their possessions. He tithes to the priest Melchizedek, again demonstrating his faith by entrusting his wealth and well-being to the hand of Yahweh. And then we arrive in chapter 15, and here we see the definitive verse regarding Abraham, our father, in the faith. God here reiterates his earlier promise to Abraham, and he now he strengthens it with a covenant. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So again, here is Abraham, somewhere between 75 and 85 years old, told by God that he would have a son and a great many descendants, and Abram believed. He believed God. We could also consider Genesis 18, and you don't need to turn there, but this is the, uh, the story where Abram and Sarah were visited by messengers of God, one of whom we understand to be a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And upon these messengers' arrival, Abraham immediately bows down to them. He welcomes them. He serves them. He listens intently to their message. And all of these things indicate that Abraham had faith. He believed. And now if you contrast Abraham's behavior, his works, with that of his self-proclaimed children in our passage, here standing in front of them was the full revelation of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, And instead of humbling themselves and listening, they're arguing and they're scoffing. They hated this messenger and they wanted him dead. They would not bow down, they would not serve, and they would not believe. These Jews were in reality nothing like Abraham, nothing like the father they professed to have. They were failing miserably to represent the family name. And as we go on in our, te- in our text, they persist, these Jews persist in their blindness and their refusal to listen. Again, they're, they're missing Jesus' point uh, in verse 41 now. They say, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Now, there's a couple of aspects that I want to point out from this comment. One is, again, that the Jews are just reinforcing the fact that they can trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. And they're relying on that lineage. They're claiming Abraham as their own, and by extension, God as their own. And this would have in their minds making, make them righteous and on the right side of this debate with Jesus. But another aspect to this, uh, this comment that I think we should notice is that it seems to me they are, they're calling Christ illegitimate. They're born, that, he's, that Christ is born out of wedlock. Uh, they're bringing his origin and his extraordinary birth story into question. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. You, on the other hand, we're not so sure about. Of course, we know that Christ was not born of sexual immorality. 
He was the only pure one among them, born of a virgin woman, begotten by God himself, sinless in every way, which makes the insult all the more offensive. But Jesus patiently but firmly continues in verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? And before the Jews have opportunity to answer, Jesus tells them why. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And then verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, scripture doesn't record the Jews' response. So we're left to imagine uh, the shocked silence or the murmuring or the outrage at Jesus' indictment. According to Jesus, this unbelieving crowd does not belong to Abraham, nor to God, but to Satan. Their will and their words and their works prove it. So how so? How do their works prove they're of Satan? Well, first of all, as we've already seen, they hate Christ. They hate God's own son. They want him dead. They cannot stand to hear his words. They will not listen or obey. They do not stand in the truth the same way Satan does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When Satan lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. The problem is not a lack of evidence, a lack of truth, or information, or a lack of signs or prophecies. Those were abundant. The problem is that the truth was not in them. They cannot hear the truth. They do not want the truth. And so they remain slaves to sin and to Satan, even though the truth that can set them free is being freely offered to them. Have any of us experienced this when sharing the gospel with other people? It seems to me that people will accept any kind of solution to their problem except for the gospel and their need for repentance and faith. People will, will do anything but change. People don't want to believe that they have a problem and they don't want to believe that they are the problem. By nature, they're not interested in a solution. Unless God does a sovereign work in their lives, they will never want the solution. And the Jews were not interested in repentance either. For them, name-dropping Abraham was enough. In their minds, they were fine the way they were, better than Jesus even. Their lives are not marked by humility or repentance or love for God and neighbor, but with deceit, stiff-necked pride, and self-glorification. That actually sounds a lot like Satan. Jesus says, your will is to do your father's desires. But what are Satan's desires? Well, first of all, Satan desires preeminence. He desires to be above God. And we see this in the book of Matthew when Satan tempts Christ. If you want to turn there, it's Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus willingly entered into a time of testing to prove his righteousness, to prove that he was of God. Matthew chapter 4 and Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him, to Christ. So we see here Satan challenging Christ's submission to God's authority by tempting him to put God to the test and enticing Jesus to give him the worship that rightfully belongs to God. In fact, it was Satan's desire for God's authority and position that led him to the pride which caused him to originally rebel against God, to seek to elevate himself and his throne above God's throne. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28, 28, one of a couple of passages in the Old Testament where we get some glimpses into uh, the fall of Satan. In this uh, passage, the Lord is pronouncing judgment on the king of Tyre, uh, and it also alludes to Satan's position in Eden and his fall, uh, where he's cast down from his high position. Ezekiel chapter 28, starting in verse 12. This is about Lucifer, or Satan. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On that day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you. O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your mists and, and it consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Now granted, there is some, some maybe difficult prophetic language in there, but we can all see where this is headed for Satan, right? We see a fall to earth and we see a future uh, destruction entirely. Uh, there's one other uh, sort of a dual passage of judgment having to do with Satan. And this time, uh, it's against the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. And we get another glimpse of the fall of Satan. You don't need to turn there. This is in Isaiah 14, though, if you want to. 
uh, verses 12 to 15. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And so scripture tells us that Satan started out perfect, wise, beautiful, blameless, splendid, and anointed. But his heart was lifted up with pride. He wanted the glory for himself that belongs only to God. And so he was cast down, and he has spent all his time since vainly seeking to subvert God's plans and divert God's glory. Back in our text now in verse 44, Jesus says of Satan that he was a murderer from the beginning. A murderer from the beginning. Remember how it was Satan in the form of a serpent who tricked Eve into eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He brought about the death, both physical and spiritual, for the entire world. How many deaths in the world have been as a result of Satan? We could rightly say all of them. It was Satan who crouched at Cain's door, tempting him to kill his brother, and this is the first recorded murder in history. It was Satan who filled Judas's heart in order that he would betray our Lord and Savior, resulting in the most significant murder in our world's history. And it was Satan who the Jews were emulating, seeking to kill Christ. So Satan's a murderer from the beginning. But beyond murder, Satan continues to wander throughout God's creation, um, doing lesser damage. It is Satan who snatches away God's word after it is taught. This is Mark 4, verse 15. It is Satan who oppresses people, keeping them in bondage. Acts 10, verse 38. It is Satan who tries to outwit God's people, 2 Corinthians 2.11. Satan who schemes against us, Ephesians 6.11. He tries to hinder us, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. It is Satan who sets snares for us, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.26. And it is Satan who prowls around, seeking someone to devour. That's 1 Peter 3.8. And so these are the desires of Satan. And if you think about the behavior of the Jews over the past few chapters, you can see every one of them displayed in their actions and their attitudes. And Satan is still very much active in our world today. And many times we're unaware of how much influence he is having in our world and in our lives particularly. I think we have bought into the notion that we need to be on the lookout for a red tail and a pitchfork, when really it's our own behavior that is the best indicator of Satan's influence. And we really need, as even as believers, to consider the behavior of the Jews in our story as a warning for our own lives. Are we being arrogant or prideful? Are we unwilling to listen to the scriptures or godly counsel from well-meaning brothers and sisters? Are we teachable? Or do we assume that we already know what's going to be taught before it's said? Do we take correction well or do we feel deep down that we're always right? And it's always those who differ from us who are wrong or even in sin. Do we justify unloving attitudes because our doctrine is correct? Do we feel we're above certain tasks, unwilling to take the lowest position as Christ did? 
Are we selfish? Do we want our conversations to be about us? Or do we feel like we always have the most worthwhile and significant things to say? Are we unwilling to be honest about our struggles? Disguising our weaknesses and not admitting when we need help? Are we overly concerned with how we appear to others, physically or intellectually or spiritually? Are we liars? Do we bend the truth to gain an advantage? To make ourselves look better than we are or to make others look worse? Are we murderers? Not literally, but with hatred and malice in our hearts? Do we enjoy holding a grudge or making slanderous comments to damage someone else's reputation? Do you find yourself, instead of trying to glean from scripture or Sunday school lessons or sermons, just trying to poke holes in what you're hearing, finding fault with God's word or focused on the shortcomings of those who are proclaiming it? The Jews found fault with Christ as well, although there was none to find. Jesus says in verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? Answer, none. In spite of their allegations and suggestions, there was no actual sin. Christ was always and only righteous and sinless. There was only smokescreen and diversion and excuses not to believe. It is not a lack of truth that prevents people from believing. It is deadness in sin and rebellion to the truth that they already know. Furthermore, another warning that we could glean from these Jews, are we busy trying to justify ourselves and seek our own glory like they were? Do we harbor jealousy and selfish ambition? The book of James tells us where this comes from, James 3, 14 and 15. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So did we catch that? Jealousy and selfish ambition are not only earthly, not only unspiritual, they are demonic. They are outworkings of spiritual darkness and they are works of Satan. So we can see that Satan can still, although not win entirely, he can still wage war against us and, and do some damage. And so we must do battle against temptation and sin with everything that we have, using every means of grace available to us through Christ. We must, as Paul teaches us in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Well, I'm not going to exegete that whole passage, 
But suffice to say that God's grace is enough for his people. By the strength he provides, we will prevail over the devil. Though Satan will try, none of God's children will ever be snatched from his hand. Our part in this is to be vigilant and fight. Because Satan will continue to work against God's purposes. And although he is a defeated enemy, he is still active. As our passage tells us, he has many children. In fact, if you, are, if you are not a child of God, by faith, like Abraham was, you are, according to Jesus, a child of the devil. If you do not believe that Christ is who he says he is, and love him for it, you already stand condemned. According to Jesus, we all have one of two fathers. And the number one indicator of whose child you truly are is who you love and serve. If you are one of God's children, a true seed of Abraham, you will love Jesus. You will humble yourself, knowing you're a sinner. You will cast yourself upon him as the only way to be made right with God. And you will want to bear a family resemblance. You'll want to be like Christ in how he loved and how he served. You'll strive to emulate him in his compassion, in his patient endurance, and in his selfless, humble obedience to the Father. Part of the reason that the Jews could not stomach Christ as the Messiah was that they were looking for a powerful military leader, someone to free them from Roman servitude, to give them national pride, and to make Israel great again. Jesus wasn't offering that. Jesus came with promises of spiritual freedom and a heavenly kingdom by way of suffering and dying to sin and dying to self. Being a child of God is taking the lesser portion in this life, like Abraham did when he divided land with Lot, in order to receive an imperishable inheritance in the next life. Now don't mistake what I'm saying. There are great earthly blessings and great spiritual blessings to be received by following Christ. The law of sowing and reaping still applies. We should lead our children in the way that they should go, that they will not depart from it. We should model our marriages after Christ and the church. We should do our work with integrity, and we should give our time and efforts to the local church. We can enjoy God and all that he has granted us to the glory of his name, but we ought never mistake it for heaven. We are as far from heaven as Egypt was from the promised land. To quote Vodi Baucom, no matter how good things get in this world, it's all Egypt. There will never be enough gold chains, fine linen, praise, adoration, or anything else to satisfy the yearning that God has placed in us. Only his presence in the land of his promise will satisfy his people. It's this family reunion with our heavenly father Christ our brother and all of our siblings in the Lord, Abraham included, that every true child of God longs for. Is that what you're longing for? Or are you more concerned with the things of this world? Making money, gaining influence, leisure activities? Are you aware that even if you gain the whole world, you can do nothing to save your soul? If you hear what I'm saying today, if you hear the words of Christ, that unless you believe he is Lord, you will die in your sins, 
then turn, confess your sins, call out to him to save you by the merit of his blood, and he will do it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Be like Abraham. Bow, worship, listen, and believe. But the sad truth is that many cannot hear the words of Christ. They may hear them with their ears well enough, sometimes repeatedly for years and years, but often never with their hearts or minds. In fact, we all were at one point unable to hear the gospel until God sovereignly granted us the spiritual ability to hear it and hearts of flesh to receive it. We were no better off than the Jews, rebellious towards God, hating his messenger or either and either indifferent to the cost or seeking to justify ourselves some other way. But thank the Lord the story did not end there for those of us who believe, and not for us, and not for the vast number of Jews who would come to Christ after his resurrection. In Romans chapter 5, we read in verse 1, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verses 6 to 11, For while we were still weak, which we were, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, which we were, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, there is only one way to be made right with God and to become one of his children. It's not through your family name. It's not through the faith of your father or grandfather. It's by grace through your own faith in the life, death, and resurrection of God's messenger and savior, Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul teaches us in the book of Galatians that all who come to Christ by faith, whether Jew or Gentile, young or old, poor or rich, powerful or weak, we're all grafted in to the Abrahamic family tree. We become the true offspring of Abraham and the heirs according to the promises made to him, promises of land, descendants, and blessings fulfilled in Christ. The promised land, a land that is fairer than day, where Satan, sin, and death will be no more. Descendants, a vast multitude of brothers and sisters in the Lord with whom we'll spend eternity. And gospel blessings abound as we live by faith, having peace with God and believing in Christ, our faith being counted to us as righteousness. We then turn around and bless the world by proclaiming Christ and offering that same reconciliation to others. Brothers and sisters, let us live as true offspring of Abraham, the people of God. Amen.